I think there's no doubt that in most of the research, the UK is one of the best places to start a business because it is so easy. We push children into school for very obvious reasons and we teach them what they need to know to come out of school and to get a job. But I don't get any sense that while they're in that space, they're being taught how to create jobs. That's a very big question, Gary. The business failure rate after five years is about two-thirds. You would be surprised at how many businesses are multi-million pound turnovers that haven't got the basics in order. Welcome to the Business Sense podcast. I'm Gary Crosby. This is the podcast where we make sense of the business journey by talking to owners about what they've learned along the way. Let's jump into today's episode. Bev, thanks for joining me this morning. You're welcome, Gary. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here with uh, Bev Hurley. Uh, She is the CEO of YTKO. We'll definitely talk about that at some point. But just before we start, tell me a little bit about your current role uh, and how long you've been doing it. Uh, well, I'm, I became chief exec of YTKO in 2000, mm-hmm. and uh, before that, I've been running my own businesses of different sizes. And so, a part of being chief exec is to have oversight of absolutely everything. So, yep. all of the project work, the billing, the risk, the change, the people, the operations. And I really enjoy the rounded nature of the CEO role. Mm, mm. And, and did I read it right that you once had a job in a gold mine? <laughs> yes. Tell, tell me about that. <laughs> so I've been running my own businesses all my life, apart from twice. Right. The first one was when I left school and college and went into social housing in London, <clears throat> which was pretty transformational in, mm-hmm. in uh, seeing the other side of life. And then um, in my mid-twenties, I got married and my husband was a mining engineer. We'd met in the UK. And he said to me, you know, I really want to go back into mining. And I didn't know really what that meant. My only concept of mining was from the UK and coal mines and, Mm. you know, a bit of stuff in Cornwall. And so we ended up going to Canada and we lived on the East Coast for a few years where he worked in a copper mine. Mm -hmm. And then we went to a brand new gold mine, which had been discovered right beside the Trans-Canada Highway. So these three mines were built side by side and we mined the gold and we produced it on site. And it was a fantastic experience, um, particularly because it was the first non-unionized mine in the whole world Mm. so that was a massive change because that industry sector is very much hierarchical Mm. um so i was part of the change team and learned a lot it was blooming cold (laughs) minus 42 was the coldest Wow! and we were about five hours from the nearest town so it was quite an experience in in several different ways but i learned a huge amount from that yeah very interesting, very interesting. I mean, I think about the um, the business environment in the UK, you know, 5.5 million uh, businesses, the, va- the vast majority of them tiny, tiny businesses, you know, three quarters not employing anybody else. Um, and what you need to become a director of a company in the UK is, um, you know, an internet connection and, and 12 pounds. Yep. So what are the implications of that, do you <clears throat> think? I think there's no doubt that in most of the research the UK is one of the best places to start a business because it is so easy. Mm. Um, other countries have regulations or you have to pay, you know, membership of chambers and so on. Whereas in the UK, as you say, we can just get on and do it. Yeah. Which is great because I think we are really a, an entrepreneurial nation. The trouble is 
we're also a nation of shopkeepers, as you mm-hmm. say, and, mm-hmm. and very small businesses. And um, not only are most of our five and a half million SMEs micro, less than four people. Mm-hmm. Um, when YTKO went through the 100 employee milestone, I was happened to be searching on the ONS website for some statistics about labor market. Mm. And I was looking at the breakdown of these S- the RSME base and uh, only 0.2% get through 100. Oh, yeah. And that really shocked me because mm. I realized quite how flat our profile is. Mm. It's not dissimilar to other countries across Europe. Uh, Germany is slightly different to us, but very similar to France, for example. And so for me, that shows just how hard it is to get beyond nine is the real key tipping point. Only mm. about 5% get beyond nine. Mm. Mm. So it's it's easy to start. It's easy to get your first few customers, um, particularly if you're just operating locally and take on a, oh, two or three staff. Mm. But after that, it gets really, really challenging. Uh, and... That dearth of businesses that go beyond nine, do you think that's um, because of how we teach our business owners? Is, is it how the market operates? Is it a sense that people get comfortable uh, at, an, at a lower level of, of staff oh, membership? That's a very big question, Gary. Um, <clears throat> the business failure rate after five years is about two thirds. Hmm. So most people don't ever continue anyway. Um the everybody, so academic research, uh, institutional research, the Scale Up Institute, mm. uh, the two biggest challenges are access to what's called access to markets. Mm-hmm. So sales, marketing, business development, actually getting enough profitable customers mm-hmm. and money. <clears throat> yeah. And then as you start to grow, then you get the third leg of the trilogy, the people part. Mm. And um, so I think, I think people are very happy to be small. They don't want the complications of employing lots of people and the stress that, mm-hmm. that comes with that and the challenges, the law, staying on the right side of the law, finding people in mm-hmm. tight labor markets. And uh, the other thing is if you haven't properly researched how long it's going to take you to get to market, and how much it's going to cost, and what the most effective ways are, which is a key underestimation in most people, mm-hmm. then you very rapidly run out of working capital. Mm-hmm. And the capital and the markets bit are really closely interlinked. So I don't think we're very good as a nation on on sales. I think there's a bit of a cultural legacy that somehow it's a bit Dirty, mm-hmm. perhaps. Yes. Yeah. Unlike, Dirty word. Unlike the States, where everybody's really happy to talk about sales and you get vice presidents, you know, that have come up through the sales routes and yeah. those things. That very rarely happens in, in the UK, mm. you know, uh, in big companies. And so so I think that's a factor, the whole actually finding enough profitable customers, number one, always. And I think the, the other thing that you touched on is teaching our businesses. And I don't think most people actually are taught no and that's part of the problem because they don't know what they don't know and before we moved into delivering public sector projects as opposed to just pure commercial work we were just horrified at 
what was being taught then, 20 years ago, and is still being taught now. Mm. Um, but we so, don't teach it in schools, do we? I mean, really? one of the things that crossed my mind is that we we push children into school for very obvious reasons and we teach them what they need to know to come out of school and to get a job. But I don't get any sense that while they're in that space, they're being taught how to create jobs. That's very true. Um, they're not taught to be entrepreneurial. No. And partly that's because of the way our academic institutions are funded. You know, they're funded on exam results. Mm. And whilst over the past generation, there's been a lot more enterprise clubs and societies and business plan competitions mm. and those sorts of things, because uh, I've been involved in quite a few of them myself. And that's great because that creative spirit is really alive and well in people when mm. they're young. Yes. And I do think that the system uh, squashes that out of them and there isn't really a, a kind of holistic continuum of entrepreneurial education right from the early stage all the way through into college into university and so on we we just don't have that in place in our country mm. um, and I think that's because for hundreds of years we've always had you know GCSEs and O levels mm. yeah. and A levels and degrees and that's what education is predicated on you know it's only been fairly recently we've had the you know the um enhancement of MVQs and mm. that whole line as well, which mm. has produced some very good entrepreneurs. Mm. And we and I get the sense that we teach people to do, but we don't teach people to run businesses that do. And and that's still a, we're still a long way away from that. Yes, mm. very much so. And I think from the little that I've seen, there's quite a gap in uh, what private schools teach and what state schools teach, if anything. Right. Um, in terms of when you start running a sizable organisation, you spend a lot of time communicating. Mm. Uh, and you need to have the confidence if you're maybe presenting to investors or, or even to customers. And so the interpersonal skills and the communication skills I think are really, really important mm. at, at all levels. That's interesting. And, and we don't teach that very well. No, the softer skills. The softer skills. Were. And you, I don't think you can build a business without building a person. Mm. Yeah, agreed. So when you talk about that magic number nine um, and the and what it takes to step beyond that and, and to take on all of those, those additional responsibilities, is there a mindset element to that, that when you begin, you've got to have that end in mind? Well, when I'm teaching, I always talk about you have to start with the end destination. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a political assumption that all businesses want to grow. Yes. And and that aggravates me mm, because me what's wrong with being small, <laughs> um, uh, especially when it's tough to grow. And so I, I get quite irate when, when politicians talk about why aren't there more high-growth businesses and why aren't there more high-growth businesses run by women, in mm. particular if women have got some inherent failing that they can't. Um, so I think the people that do it probably are thinking about a bigger goal. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, building their company turnover up to a certain size, their EBITDA at a certain level so that they could sell, make a profit, mm -hmm. and then go and do something else or yeah. do it all again. Um, that's something. I think a lot of people start out without that end destination in sight and without a plan of yes. how to get from A to B, even 
in a, an outline form, you would be surprised at how many businesses at multi-million pound turnovers that haven't got the basics in order, haven't got a strategy, haven't got a plan, yep. don't measure profitability, don't know what their most profitable products and services are. And I think, how did you get to be so big <laughs> without this kind of basic infrastructure in place? So yeah. it just goes to show that you can get quite a long way if you've got a good product or service mm. that the market wants. Mm. Um, but yes, I think moving out of the comfort zone of what we might call the family working environment yeah. where you've been mm. through it all together, mm. um, you know the company inside out, very close-knit. Uh, and the key tipping point for me isn't actually going beyond nine, it's getting to the getting to and through the sort of 20 to 40 where mm. you have to become a proper grown-up organization mm -hmm. so you're putting uh resources into the back end uh, it hr things that don't generate yes. uh, yeah. fees and that puts the pressure on the front end mm -hmm. and if the front end of the business the sales marketing biz dev is already a bit wobbly getting through that um that tipping point where you have to have more structure and process and a bit of a management hierarchy. Mm -hmm. It's such a key change. So you, I think you can probably get up to about 15 or so reasonably comfortably, but after that you have to start yeah. changing. It, it gets beyond the, the, the control, if you like, of one person to exactly. be able to, to yes. run a company like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. Then you've got mm -hmm. to delegate, you've got to start thinking about a leadership team so you, you're going to have to put that structure and those mm. processes in place because managing people takes a lot of time to mm. do it well mm. and those back those back office organizations if you like are a cost center they're not yes. they're not contributing directly but they put pressure because that means the front line's got to deliver more mm. to pay for mm. the cost of the back end so mm. and particularly now you can't it's very hard to, to pass on those sorts of increases into customers because mm. You know, every business is struggling at the moment with mm. with all sorts of costs, mm. uh, as, as are we as buyers and consumers. Mm. Now, I, I've heard you talk uh, before about the way you've grown your businesses over the last 30 years. And, and now and again, more than once, determination has popped up as one of the things that... that uh, how do we teach our business owners to be determined? And is it is it a, a learned skill or is it an inherent part of them? Well, that's a very interesting, interesting question to which I don't know the answer, whether it's whether you can teach people to be determined. I think you can certainly teach people to be more resilient. Okay. It's a slightly different thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, my experience has been that the, the determination and the ambition, which goes hand in hand with that, are probably from within. Mm. Because unless you have that fire um, and, and passion about what you're doing and where you want to get to, mm. it's really hard to be knocked over when times are tough or we have a crisis like COVID and so on. Yeah. And yeah, a lot of businesses, I think, in COVID, obviously lots of markets just imploded, but some businesses that I know just said, do you know what? That was the final straw. We just had enough. Yes. They had run out of that that inner fire, that determination to keep going. Yeah. You know? And when I was looking at the stats this morning, that 5.5 .5 million, 
is a fall off from pre-COVID, where we had six million small, no, yeah. six million businesses six million. in the in the in the UK. So there's clearly been some of that where people have said that this I've gone far enough. Yeah. Mm. Yes, I'm mm. sure that will bounce back. Mm. You know, I'm sure we'll see in a couple of years those figures you know starting to to track back up again. Yeah. I I read that one business or was it 77 businesses were started every hour just coming up to covid mm. and that's a real indication that that as a nation we we are entrepreneur we are determined we yes. are ambitious to yes. do things it's how far do we want to go mm. with it so i think is the is the it's different from person to person of course mm. And that twelve pounds and the internet connection, and now I'm a director of a company, yeah. can be a spark, but sometimes it can be a burden. It seems. Yes, it can, and I think for businesses out there who are looking for reliable, professional sources of help, mm. it's really hard because when you're tiny, you don't know what you don't know. Well, actually, when mm. you're big, you still don't know what it's like. You know, I have no idea what it's like to be a 250-person company, although I suspect it's far less different than being a three-person to a 20-person yes. company. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's just more of the same. Uh, sorry, going back to the the um, the question, though, which, which I have now forgotten. <laughs> we, we were talking about the spark or the burden. Once you oh, yes. once you become That's a director, right. so when when you um, when you start out and you don't know what you don't know, you're looking round for sources of help, mm. and there's two issues here. One is that there are hundreds of thousands of people just like you, mm. all looking for help, mm -hmm. and there are so few, relatively, who have been further up the food chain, who know what it's like and who have experienced the solutions to what you're facing. It's yeah. like, where do you find somebody that's been through it, has done it for themselves, mm -hmm. and and who is a bit further ahead? Mm. Because the bigger you get, the less you tend to go to general networking-y type things. Oh, that's cool. my experience. Yes. Uh, because usually you're just too busy um, to do it or it doesn't deliver you value. Mm. Because for me, I want to go and talk to businesses that have done the next step in the scaling journey. Yes. I don't want to go and talk to people who are further behind me unless I'm there to mentor and mm. give back. Mm. So that's the first thing is where do you find people? And secondly, because there's no regulations around coaching or marketing or PR, I mean, there's professional institutions, but, mm, but mm, that's it. Mm. You don't have to be a qualified. It's very easy to be led astray. Mm. Uh, and that's particularly true in the investment market when people are looking for you know, very early stage money. Mm. There's lots of people who talk the game about, you know, helping young companies and blah, blah, blah. And they're just out for status or fees. Mm. But, but you don't know that because, you, you know, you, you can't judge what's good or bad. So, so I know you've you've been mentored yourself. I've, I did read that. And uh, you've also been a mentor your, yourself. Uh, and I, I tend to look at it from the business owner's perspective. You know, uh, what kind of qualities does the business owner have to have before they can be mentored effectively? I think at the top of that list, I'd put an open mind, mm -hmm. a bit of humility, mm -hmm. 
um, some self, uh, good self understanding, uh -huh. so that you uh, recognize your weaknesses or your gaps. Uh -huh. uh, because unless you're prepared to listen and reflect, what is the point? Yes. Um, so that open mindset, I think, is absolutely fundamental to mm. make a mentoring relationship work. Mm. And I think about the, the flow of information, you know, so in coaching, normally the information flows from the coachee to me as the coach. But in a mentoring relationship, the flow goes the other way. If you were my mentor, I'd be expecting to learn about where you've been and what you've done and who you know and the systems and the traps that you've fallen into that you're trying to help me to avoid falling into what what makes a really good mentor well actually i think the qualities for both great coaches and great mentors have a lot in parallel mm -hmm. um it's about for me the end result is all about enabling and mm -hmm. empowering the person on the other side yeah so whether you do that by sharing your own experiences whether you do it by questioning their thinking or challenging their thinking so mm. that they go away and thought oh perhaps yeah perhaps i was a bit blinkered there and then talking about what potential solutions might be the at the end of the day you can't do it for them no and you shouldn't do it for them no indeed it's, it's all about <laughs> building the person as i mentioned earlier on building you'd, you'd the person's a, capability you'd be a consultant if you did yes it for yes them. exactly yeah, and yeah. then you'd tell them the time right <laughs> 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 yes so so i do think there's lots of parallel qualities between coaching and, and yeah. mentoring mm. now you're the founder of um enterprising women um and uh i Personally, I don't like to single out the sexes in, in terms of whether or not they've got challenges or not in, in business. But from your perspective, what does that enterprise and women um, organization do? How many hours have we got to talk about <laughs> gender in enterprise? So I, I don't like to single it out either. No. Uh, I hope before I die, we won't need any women-specific programs and support. Mm-hmm. But it's an inescapable fact that women are hugely underrepresented in mm -hmm. enterprise. And in fact, we don't know how many women-owned businesses there mm. are because HMRC doesn't collect gender disaggregated statistics. So even the Rose Report's estimates of 24% were mm. estimates. Mm. So that's a bit of a basic starting point, right? Mm. And a lot of women's businesses are small, like a lot of men's businesses are small, uh, and maybe under the, rate, under the VAT radar. Yes. So, however, having said that as a kind of an overarching goal, the fact is that women do business differently to men. And in addition to the other challenges that we've talked about before, you know, sales and marketing, and mm. finance and so on, um, they have uh, different attitudes to money, to debt particularly, to going into debt, and I'll tell you a little personal story about that, um, and uh, confidence and risk. Mm. And so if we teach entrepreneurs, or if entrepreneurs access teaching and support, unless we address this, and if we just keep doing the one-size-fits-all approach, which was what it was like 20 years ago, mm. and we don't tailor it for the audience, then we're going to get what we've always got. Mm. And in business, you do everything with the customer at the heart of it. That's your constant focus. 
what's what's my customers needs and how can I best meet them uh, so yeah. why don't we do that in enterprise teaching so um, enterprising women started up because back at that time there was a lot a quite a lot of pressure and a lobby group called prowess which was making the economic case as opposed to the social case for empowering women through enterprise. Mm -hmm. And it was going to become sort of mandatory in government tenders and those sorts of things to be, to be accredited and, and meet certain standards. And uh, so I got involved in that organization and, and helped that cause a bit. And within the east of England back then, 2006, uh, they put out a tender to transform the way that women's enterprise support was delivered, right. which was really easy because there wasn't any. So uh, <laughs> we, we split our budget uh, half into enabling more women to start up, particularly disadvantaged women, uh -huh. and the other half to helping existing women-owned businesses to become more resilient and to grow. So you so, so would it be fair to say that at that point then you were focused on equality of opportunity? Absolutely. Not equality of, of outcome. It, uh, yeah, it, it absolutely. Yeah. Uh, equality of opportunity and accessibility. Yes. So actively outreaching, going where women go, um, marketing in female-friendly terms. We were one of the real pioneers mm. of how to attract women. And one of the things I'm most proud of in all of our businesses, so I can't remember now, 27,000 entrepreneurs we've helped and about the same number of businesses, half are women. Oh. And that is, <clears throat> it's something that still sends tingles down mm. my spine when I say it, because you can achieve it if you do it right and if it resonates with women and if it meets their needs. Mm. It's absolutely doable. But like all things, it needs investment mm. to make that happen. Um, and women themselves say, especially at the startup and early stage businesses, they really love working in women-only groups mm -hmm. because there's lots of shared bonds, mm -hmm. you know, children, partners, the school run, you know, whatever it is. Yep. They feel much more confident about asking questions because they're not going to be patronized. Mm -hmm. And so whilst women <clears throat> say they prefer it or they want it as an option, I think we have to keep delivering it. Hmm. You know, we're, uh, we're answering the market needs. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating. But that's not the only area that, you've, that you operate in, I know, enterprising women. Um, I was reading about your uh, charity as well, The Perspective Project. Yeah. And, uh, and, and th that's got a mental health focus, if I'm right. That's right. Um, fascinating charity. I'm f privileged to be chair of that. Uh, all to do with using art in the broadest sense of that, music, sculpture, painting, poetry, mm. to deal with mental illness. And we noticed a sharp uptake in service, uh, in our services during COVID, mm. of course, um, and had to pivot that little charity because art is very much to be experienced in the flesh. Yes. And of course we couldn't. So we put up a, a gallery uh, and so on. And we're also working with corporates, some of the more enlightened corporates, uh, especially in high pressure working environments, like some of the London law firms, for mm -hmm. example, mm. where levels of burnout 
uh, and um, mental mm. well-being are really pretty high. Mm, mm. Um, I've also looked about the the NHS. You know, it's a very similar sort of thing. Yes, and um, it's great that people can express what they can't say in mm. other ways. It's about giving those people a voice and a connection and a release through their hands or their brains or the paintbrush or whatever mm. because mm. sometimes these things are really too difficult to talk about and do you get a sense then that people are they they are, i've had a, a similar journey myself recently with um you know with um taking time out to spend time in the workshop making yeah. things and being creative yeah and very useful for, for me personally do you find that people are suddenly enlightened you know they they've always been taught that you solve these uh, issues with mental health by talking to other people but actually there is another way to do it yep the 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 solving by doing mm. yes very much mm. and we we saw some of that come out in covid where the government was just saying just go and have a walk go and sit in the garden yes. if you have one and i think that uh, you know typically as a nation the whole stiff upper lip, just <laughs> just get on and pull your yes. socks up. You know, we've yeah. been through the war. And, you know, that, man that's, up. I mean, that's man a really, up. I hate yes. that phrase. I, I yeah. hate that phrase too. Yeah. Um, and uh, so when we couldn't talk or only, you know, on the phone, mm. I think a lot of people did reappraise their life because mm. all of a sudden that sort of frantic treadmill, which we often are on, mm. kind of stopped or was very different anyway. And we were thrown back on our own devices. And so people, you know, the bread making thing. Yes, it, it's just yes. like lots of men <laughs> know how to make bread and say that they actually found it really therapeutic because you're just doing and creating something else. Yes. And yes, I mean, I'm not a lover of weeding, mm. but sometimes if I just go outside for 10 minutes in the fresh air, pull a few weeds up mm. or water a pot yeah. or something just to be away from the pressure. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And we all need that release, whether it's sports or, or yes. anything. Yes. But what I get, uh, Bev, as we talk through this, is, a, is, a, is the image of a person who is very busy, very committed, um, with so many different plates that are out there uh, spinning away. And um, I'm wondering if you've got... Um, any tips for business owners about how you manage your time to fit so many things in? I think I'm the world's worst. Um, <laughs> so uh, there's lots of talk about quality of life mm -hmm. and separating life and work. Mm -hmm. well, I'm hopeless at that. Right. Everything bleeds in, partly because I love my work so much mm. that it's not work. Right. You know what I mean by yes, that? Yes, I do. You know, it's I a do. pleasure and a challenge and interesting because I'm constantly meeting new people and, and I love my team and uh, and it's such a source of pleasure and stimulation mm. as well, of course, sometimes as utter hell, but, you know, we, <laughs> we all have those times. Um, <clears throat> so my mother said to me, if you want anything doing, ask a busy woman. Yes. Now, that's a very sexist comment to make, right? But I do think women are extremely good at spinning plates at multitasking especially if they've had kids mm, mm. and they're working or they're running their own yeah. business yeah. Um, because you have to be super organized to fit everything in um, and also I think another gender trait is women find it quite hard women find it harder than men to say no mm -hmm. 
and I um, I too suffer sometimes from that problem right. because I like to help. I like to try and make a difference. And there is so much wrong in the world that I feel if you can't get passionate and stirred by those things that are wrong, well, you might as well give up. Mm. Uh, and But having got stirred and angry or whatever it is, to try in some tiny way to make a difference, mm. that's really important to me. That's one of the key things that drives me is making a making an impact, making a difference, even if it's tiny in just to one person. Mm. But it's not when you think about YTKO, is it? It's twenty-seven thousand <laughs> people and and what seventy odd million pounds of finance. Yeah, 80, eighty-five now. Eighty-five yeah. now. Yeah, we so need to update our website. <laughs> what What's next for for YTKO? Well, it's really interesting. Um, I mean, broadly, its first twenty years were all in the commercial world. Mm -hmm. uh, its second twenty years were largely in the public sector world and that social mission that we went on, yeah. uh, which we achieved in 2019. And now it's about balancing the two, having kind of proved what could be done. Mm -hmm. uh, so as well as making an impact, if somebody says to me, oh, you can't do that, that's that's <laughs> that's also a driver. It's like, okay, just give me a mountain and, and I'll climb it. Yeah. Um, so so we're busy doing quite a lot of planning. Obviously, up here in um, Cambridge we, and Peterborough, we have the GrowthWorks project, mm -hmm. which is just into its second full year of delivery. And that's been fantastic for our part of that service. It's all about finding those ambitious companies that, mm want to grow or are already growing mm, and mm. so i've been privileged to meet so many really really zippy companies of all sizes and shapes and sectors across the region and help them with growth works grants with master classes with angel and capex support mm -hmm. uh, uh, connections i mean just a whole range of stuff the skills part because particularly in Cambridgeshire, the schools issue is pretty tough. Although mm. I think generally it's it's widespread now, mm. um, attracting people to come and work for you and keeping them and developing them, finding them at, at a price you can afford. In some sectors, that's really tough as well. Yeah, big problem. Yeah. yeah. So it's been it's been great. So I'm sure that our future will um, lie in. Doing a bit more of the same, hopefully still breaking some uh, barriers, some challenges, mm -hmm. uh, a combination of normal consultancy work, some public sector work. I'd very much like to raise a fund right. because I do a bit of angel investing and um, uh, I think there's some learnings there that could usefully be applied in the public sector world uh, and the private sector world, actually. Uh, because there's lots of hype around equity and mm. Dragon's Den and you yeah. know, venture capitalists. And frankly, you know, you could throw most of it out of the window. Right. Um, so, so I'd like <laughs> to do that. But I will be at some point stepping back. I keep saying that. I've been saying that for far too long. <laughs> I have a succession team ready, raring to go. And um, so hopefully I will be able to hand over fairly soon, step up to chair. Um, and then I have, a, as you say, got a lot of other stuff that I do. Offshore racing. I'm doing the Fastnet this year. 
Wow. scuba i just bought a paddleboard right so i yes i am yeah. going to hopefully actually get a life well it was funny because when <laughs> i told I, I i don't think you'll know this person but i was talking to somebody yesterday and i said oh tomorrow I'm, I'm talking to bev hurley and he said oh just see if you can get into the conversation maybe towards the end um and i wrote the, the question down here is it possible for bev hurley cbe to retire <laughs> oh, well, that was a good segue into that question, wasn't it? <laughs> you set um, that one up perfectly. I did, didn't I? I, I why retire? I good mean, question. Yeah. Why? If, if you can still add value, it's like all things, it, you need to know when it's time to go. Mm. And I've always said to my team, you tell me, like, I'm relying on you to tell me if yeah. you think I'm losing it or I'm not sharp or mm. I'm not making a difference because maybe you get blinded. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, you need to tell me. And I think I can still make clients say that I still make a difference. Um, and so whilst you have your health and your energy mm-hmm. and your creativity and that fire, uh, why not? Yeah, why not keep going? Why not keep going? <laughs> what a great way to finish. <laughs> um, Bev, I really appreciate you taking the time to come and see me. Um, we've skipped across so many things. We could talk for hours. I know that yeah, for sure. We, we sure could. But, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you.